0: It is great to see everyone this morning, I think many of you all know me, uh, but if you don't, my name is Zach, I am one of the pastors here at Restoration, and again, welcome um, if you are new or visiting. If you've been with us at all the past couple weeks, or if you haven't, you know that we've been in uh, Lent, right? We have purple in front, we're in the season of Lent, um, the last, and basically this seven weekends of Lent, we're looking at the last words of Jesus. And the reason for that being is we want to move past the statement of Jesus died for me, which is great and true. But as Dan has said the past couple of weeks, we want to dig deeper and think about what does that actually mean? And what does Jesus accomplish by dying for us on the cross? So we're looking at. These seven last words. We looked the first week at forgiveness, where he said, Father, forgive them. Then last week, we looked at, you will be with me in paradise. We talked about how Christ's uh, death on the cross secures eternity for us. And today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. And if you want to grab a a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 905, 905, John chapter 19. Now, as you guys are turning there, I'll go ahead and start with a story as we normally do. Uh, this past Thursday was St. Patrick's Day, and it was, uh, it was awesome, particularly one reason. It's because it coincided with my day off. It was on Thursday, and Thursday is our staff day off. So Amy and I like to be intentional about those days, and so we got to go out, but it's also, um, you know, we went to uh, uh, Ireland on our honeymoon. Our dog's birthday is, is March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm mostly Irish, more or less. So it's a great fun day to celebrate and have fun. Um, but as we, we went to this parade, you may have seen pictures on Instagram, if you're on Instagram of us there. And we were just reflecting a lot about how amazing it was and how different, you know, kind of our life was, has been since, you know, 12 years ago. And so... Twelve years ago, we didn't know each other existed. We were born on opposite sides of the planet, and God has brought us together. And we have two children. We have a dog. We've moved to St. Louis. And it's just amazing how out of nothing, where there once was no connection, no family, um, that we do have this intimate, intimate connection and in this family that has been created. And so we're gonna see a basically. That's what's happening here in John chapter 19, even though we're only looking at a couple verses, we're going to see this similar situation. Now, as we turn to this passage, just the context, uh, keep in mind Jesus is on the cross. The soldiers have just divided his garments uh, between them, and so we pick it up then in verse uh, 25, and it says this, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary the the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "Woman, behold your son." And then he said to the disciple, "Behold your mother." And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you yourself have come to us died on the cross for us to begin this new creation and to start this new family. God, I pray that as we hear your word, as we study your word, as we look at it, that you would affect our hearts as you promised to do, encouraging us, exhorting us, convicting us, and do this by the power of your spirit. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in these few short verses, it seems pretty straightforward, right? There's four women close to Jesus, including his mother. There's John, the disciple whom he loved, and he sees them, and he tells his mother, behold your son. He's giving John, the disciple, to his mother, and he says to John, the disciple, here is your mother. He's giving his mother to John, and in this moment, you know, when you first read this, you might be thinking, you know, like, what am I going to glean from this? I know when, you know, Dan said, here's here's your three verses for the sermon in a few weeks. I was like, oh man, what am I going to say? Um, but thankfully, it's not up to me, right? It's up to the spirit. And what's beautiful is seeing how this is all uh, connected. But the big idea I want to us to walk away with, or what I want to start with, is this, that what we see in these last words of Jesus is that the work he's doing on the cross is beginning a new creation. He's creating and starting something new, particularly a family. So let's dive in then to this first point. Jesus' work on the cross is creating a new family. When we look at this text, we see that Mary receives John as a son, as I just mentioned, and John receives Mary as a mother. And we know from other verses, uh, both in the Gospel of John and other Gospels, that Mary had other children other than Jesus. We also know that John Himself had a family his brother James was an apostle along with him and presumably we don't know what happened to his his birth parents But regardless these two people who were not connected by blood have now adopted one another uh, Based on Christ's words to them on the cross Now with any story just a few sentences aren't gonna give you you know everything right? But it's good to step back and see where these verses come into the whole big picture of the gospel of John, so we're going to start by doing that. Now what's really interesting, the address that Jesus gives to his mother, he says, woman, now as an aside, we recognize that sounds weird and probably offensive if we said that today, but back then that would have been a respectful term, kind of like saying Mrs. Uh, to someone, and now it is interesting that he doesn't use the word mother, he does address her as Mrs. per se, a woman, instead of calling him mother, but regardless, it's not meant to be you know, derogatory in any way. So in chapter 2 of John's gospel is the only other place where Mary shows up. Now there's one aside in chapter 7 where, you know, it just says that Jesus' mother was present, but the only place where Jesus' mother really is in John's gospel, where there's any significance and she speaks, is John chapter 2 and John 19. And in both of those situations, Jesus addresses her the same exact way. He starts off by saying to her, woman, Now in John chapter 2, what's happening? In John chapter 2, if you're familiar with the gospel, you might know she's come up to him. They're at the wedding in Cana, a land of Cana. It's Jesus, Jesus' mother, his disciples, and they're all present, and she comes to him because they've run out of wine, and she expects him to do something, or she asks for him to do something about it. Now what he says to her is, woman, what does this have to do between you and me? My hour has not yet come. And I think this points us then, since it's the only other place where Mary is, and it's the same language that we can assume here in John chapter 19, that is now different. That what's happening is actually important between the two of them. But on top of that, whereas in John chapter two, he said, my hour has not yet come, we're reaching the climax of this gospel where his hour has come. Another thing that's interesting in this scene is that, remember, it's what I just said, a wedding. So John chapter two is a wedding. Now, what happens at a wedding? You're celebrating the coming together of two people, a man and a woman who are essentially creating a new family. Now, if you think then back, so John chapter two, they're celebrating a wedding, the creation of a new family. Now in John chapter 19, we've come, and Jesus is on the cross. And if you've been in the church for a while or grown up on it or you've read a lot of the New Testament, you might be aware that we like to use the word that Jesus has purchased his people. But also what's happening there is that throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to Christ's what? Bride. So on the cross, at this last moment, whereas there's a wedding in John chapter two, Christ is purchasing his bride. In other words... He's creating a new family, not a family by blood, but a family by his spirit, an even greater and bigger family. And when you think about it, it's actually interesting if you just think of like the human aspect of marriage. You have a man and a woman who are from different birth families, different blood families, but they are called to leave those families and form their own new family. And it's a beautiful picture of what God is doing through his spirit for his bride, the church. Now, we can go even further, and it just kind of blows my mind the way I'm like, wow, you know, the scriptures, you, you just can't make this stuff up. It's too perfectly knit together from different authors. But if we go even deeper, let's go back from John chapter 2 to John chapter 1. The beginning of John's gospel says, in the beginning. And commentators will say how a theme throughout John's gospel is just the general idea of new creation. But, you know, those, those words, in the beginning, are the same exact words that are the start of the whole Bible, in the beginning. Now in Genesis 1 and 2, you might be familiar, that's where we get the very first wedding of mankind. Between days 6 and 7, Adam marries Eve. A new family is formed, a new family is created. If you go ahead and read John chapter 1 and 2, John is very intentional to say the next day, the next day, the next day. Now if you map that out, All the study Bibles will show you the wedding at Cana, where Jesus is talking to his mother, is day seven. Then, on the cross, where Jesus is dying and purchasing his bride, that's happening on day six, and he lies in the grave on day seven, having begun this new family. So what's the point of all this? The point is that Jesus' work on the cross, these last words that he has, to us, to his mother, to his son, is that he is starting something new. He is creating a new family. And I like to think just as a a kind of personal example, it's fun for Annie and I, I know we've mentioned we have two kids and Jenny Lynn, whom we're close to through the spirit, we like to call her Auntie Jenny Lynn. And I think a lot of you all might have similar relationships where you refer to someone who's not your birth family or your blood family. You might use a, ter- a familiar term to represent that closeness. Even here in the church, we like to say brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So God is starting this new family. Now, I also recognize in hearing some of this language about family, uh, which I've mostly focused on all the glorious positive light of it, that for many of us, we come from different backgrounds and different experiences some from good families of origin, some from heartbreaking families of origin, some who consider themselves believers, some people here might be other than Christian. And so thinking about those different aspects, you know, if you are a believer and you come from a good family, amen and praise the Lord. That is a just fantastic situation to celebrate. And yet also remember that Jesus calls us to place our ultimate hope and loyalty, not in our birth family, but in the family of God. And if you're reading Gentle and Lowly with us during Lent, as we have a devotional, um, you'll know that this past week we were reading chapter 10 in Gentle and Lowly. And the very uh, central verse that he uses at the start of that chapter to, to walk through is the reminder from Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, anyone who loves father, mother, son, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now for others, you might consider yourselves a believer, but you've had a hard Uh, experience from your family of origin or maybe a bad experience or maybe you've mourned the struggle of being able to have your own family or to have your own children. Well in two, two ways I hope to to encourage you is one if you have lost anyone as I know people in this church family of restoration have that they will be with you in eternity and that you will see them again and that is the hope that we have in the family of God. And the second thing is that If you've come from just a hard family, know that this church of God, the family of God, is a restorative redemption of that, that you do have a family because of the work on the cross through Christ. Now, in ending this section, as we think about just all these different aspects, you know, Dan has has quoted Fleming Rutledge the past couple um, times, and again, she has a great quote on this because she has a a book based on these words. And it's, again, a long quote, but I think it's just a great way of summarizing everything that uh, I've been saying for the past few minutes. She says this, commenting on John 19. By rewriting the covenant in his own blood, Jesus has done something completely new. In giving his mother to his disciple, He is causing a new relationship to come into existence that did not exist before. The disciple and the woman represent the way that family ties are transcended in the church by the ties of the Spirit, and that's why Jesus calls his mother woman in the Gospel of John. He is setting aside the blood relationship in order to create a much wider family. A story in Mark's Gospel makes the same point when a crowd is sitting around Jesus and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you, and he says, who are my brother and my brothers? And looking around, he said to them, Here are my mother and my brothers. So again, we see that Jesus is calling people into a new relationship with him and with one another. Now, a family is the communal aspect of this new creation that God is working out and purchasing on the cross. Well, there's something that's specific that even allows this family to form. And that is our very own individual adoption as sons and daughters of the king of the universe, or, as you could say, our heavenly father. So what makes us connected through the work of Christ in this one big family? It's his spirit. And his spirit is what gives us this adoption. So in this scene in John chapter 19, Mary adopts John. John adopts Mary as his mother. And this adoption is a big deal because it brings us into the family of God. And it's beautiful because I love that it's not just like a corporate, okay, everyone who's on this side of the room, I guess I'll choose them and adopt them. And while we're at it, I'll adopt some more people. So how about this side? But you know, stinks to be you guys. Uh, but no, it's not just a corporate blanket. And I'll just take some people who are in this group. But it's an actual individual adoption where the Lord sees you and the Lord loves you for who you are. You might remember that in John chapter 10, when Jesus is referring to himself as the gate, he says that the sheep hear my voice and I call them by name. He calls each one of us by our very own name. Now here then in these verses also, John 19, how does it describe the way for his mother and his his disciple? He starts out by saying he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. And if you've been with us at all on Wednesdays uh, for our Wednesday Bible study, you know that we're focusing on this theme that Jesus sees. He sees you. He sees each person in this study, the person who would be cast out, rejected, when people would turn away from you, that Jesus actually sees you. Isn't that what we all want, right? To be seen? I know I do. I can be hurt if I feel like any doesn't see me. But thankfully, we have Christ who always sees us. And, that's because, and the reason it's so um, fulfilling for us is that because it gives you dignity. It says that you do matter, you are special, and that's because you've been made in his image. Now you might be also hearing me see a lot in these last couple minutes that God loves you, or he sees you, he loves you, right? Now you might be thinking, how does he love me? Why does he love me? I haven't really done anything important or successful or magnificent. I don't have a bunch of followers on social media, but that's actually the point. And see, I'm going to read these verses here in Deuteronomy 7, where God describes his adoption of Israel. It says, you are a holy people to the Lord, art your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then in verse seven, it was not because you are more than number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you. So in other words, Israel did nothing to earn God's adoption. They weren't the biggest, they weren't the best, they weren't the most successful conquerors, they weren't the kindest people. It was simply because the Lord loved them. And when you think about it, adoption has always been the story of the gospel from the very beginning. Abraham was nothing, did nothing when God called him out of the land of Ur. Moses himself was adopted by someone else, but did not do anything spectacular. He murdered someone before God came to him and chose him to lead his people. David, you might remember in the story where Samuel the prophet comes to David, the famous king of Israel, and he lines up all the son Jesse lines up all his sons and says, okay, it's gotta be one of these, right? And then Samuel's like, no, it's not one of these. And he's like, really? Uh, he's like, oh yeah, David, that guy in the field, I guess I'll go grab him, right? They, the, the story of adoption is God choosing us not for anything we've done, but simply because he sees you and he loves you. Paul fleshes this out more in New Testament epistles uh, or letters, where in the, uh, Galatians, you might be familiar with these verses from chapter four. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, for that matter. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, another author, Sarah Wilson, commenting on these verses, she's looked at verse, she looks at John chapter 19, and she looks at Galatians 4, and she pairs this together, and it's another long verse, but I think just it's a beautiful bow tie to this idea of adoption that I've been speaking about. She says this, God is known as a trinity most acutely and profoundly when the spirit of adoption from the Son enters our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father, Jesus is the last biological birth of any consequence. What matters now is the adoption of the nations. She says, I myself am an adoptive mother. I haven't given birth. The most famous of all biological mothers, Mary, makes sense to me in a new way because she became an adoptive mother too. In this very fact, she becomes the point of transition from the tribe to the church. Her adoption of the disciple as his The adoption, sorry lost it, her adoption of the disciple and his adoption of her breaks open the line of Jesus to the whole world. She says, the adoptive reality that is the church lays a claim on me in another way because my son is a different color, a different race, a different nation than me. And as a baby in my arms without even knowing it, he began to show me the shape of the church that the evangelists and the apostles sketch out for us in the New Testament. It's a family of all the nations, the family of God, where adoptive baptism takes place over even the most respectable lineage of birth. So you see, Jesus' work on the cross accomplishes this new creation. We ourselves are new creations, each individually called by name, adopted by our Heavenly Father, but that's not to remain alone in a singular relationship, but to be called into a bigger and better family. Now, similar to my first point, I know that many of us in this room actually are a part of an adoption story, whether you yourselves have adopted or whether you are someone who was adopted. And so it might feel that while adoption is great in one sense, you're, and you're thankful for your sons or daughters that you have through adoption, or you might be thankful to have a mother and father that you wouldn't have had, there can still be sadness that adoption was even required. And for some, you might be saying, why couldn't I have my own children? Or for others, you might be saying, why couldn't I grow up with my birth family? Now, this sadness is real and heartbreaking. And especially for those who are adopted or children here, there can be this yearning like you're missing a big part of who you are because you wish you knew more about where you came from. I personally never knew my biological father. I often wonder what it would have been like to grow up in like the backwoods of Tennessee, essentially, and think about, you know, how different would I be or would I be at this place? But as an encouragement to both, first of parents, I'm amazed at how tangible of an example of the gospel you are living out with your children. They are yours, just like we are all God's who has adopted us into his family and loved and sacrificed for us. You are amazing for living that out day in and day out for the rest of your lives. If you're someone who was adopted then, an encouragement, you might be thinking, who am I, where did I come from? If you have the chance to dive into that bigger story, do so, I encourage it. It's often very powerful for people, but for others, the chance might never come. And if that's the case, I wanna say this, that even if you can't go back to your first days of your birth or knowing your biological family, I invite you to go back even further to the womb to eternity past where God says he knew you from Psalm 139 that he knit you together in your mother's womb or to Ephesians where it says that before the world was even formed God had already adopted you and may that be a comfort and that in one sense you do know your origin. So as I close I want to draw us back to our original text of John 19. And we've already seen the parallel passage in chapter 2 where ad- Jesus addresses his mother in the same way. We've already mentioned how there's this idea of a wedding, this idea of creating a new family from these, ter- from these verses. Well, I think what's more is that at the end of the wedding, at the end of uh, the wedding of Cana in chapter 2, John says this when Jesus performed the miracle of water to wine. This was the first of Jesus' signs that he did, and it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there are seven signs in the Gospel of John, and the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is widely considered the seventh sign. But then when commentators come to Jesus dying on the cross and seeing his uh, coming resurrection, they can sometimes refer to it as an eighth sign. Now, why is that important? Well, John is really intentional in John chapter 20 and John chapter 21, the next two chapters, He a few times names that Jesus' resurrection happened on the first day of the week. In other words, day one, or in other words, a new creation. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection is starting something new, a new creation, a new covenant, a new people, and through adoption, a new family. And as John describes that first sign in chapter 2, that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed him, he ends his gospel with these words that he's written these things so that we might believe. Or in other words, Christ's new creation of this church family by the work on the cross manifests his glory because his hour had come. And thus we're left with the same opportunity as his disciples in chapter two to believe. And that by believing we might be a part of this new family where the creator of the whole universe the eternal King, merciful Redeemer, can be our God and our Heavenly Father. And that is a comfort. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that you purchased us on the cross, that we are wedded to you, and that it's not just us alone in relationship to you, which in itself would be magnificent, Lord, but you have engrafted us into a bigger and better family that will last for all eternity that you adopted us even in spite of our rebellion against you and you loved us and may we live out that reality of this new family just as John took Mary in and actually cared for her for the rest of her life may we too live out this reality of being a family with one another we pray this all in your son Jesus name amen